0: Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Stans. I'm so excited about this episode, and I hope you will enjoy and understand why I'm so excited about it after you listen to it. I do want to remind you that I am A podcast success and launch coach and i have a diy course that allows you to launch your podcast on your own on your own time this podcast is a part of the jewish coffee house network so make sure to check out their podcasts as well as the backlog of this podcast and keep reaching out with your awesome ideas volunteering to share your personal stories and i hope you enjoy the show Welcome back to The Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Professor Chaim Seyman. Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Thank you. The reason for our conversation today, and I'm so excited about it, is because quite surprisingly, I've asked several people to talk about this topic, and then you showed up in my life. (laughs) And then we decided this was a perfect opportunity to have you on to talk about halachic innovation, I don't know what other better way to present this topic other than as history proceeds, there is room for halacha to adapt. Rabbis don't like to talk about that so openly. And you have studied this area a lot, so I'm so excited to have you on to talk about this. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: I'm a professor of law at Villanova University, Charles Widger School of Law. They gave a lot of money for that, so you gotta add that in. This year I'm at the Herbert Katz Center at University of Pennsylvania for advanced Jewish studies. I also function in a bunch of sort of informal capacities in the community. I give shurim. I wrote a book that was published a couple of years ago called Halakha, the rabbinic idea of law. And I've generally been interested in in most recent periods in sort of halacha, halakhan culture, halakhan society, and the way all those things work together. I also serve as a dayan on the basin of America.
0: That is very comprehensive. So with that introduction, I would like to start by talking about retail versus wholesale. halacha. And could you explain that concept to us? Sure.
1: Let's back out a little bit and think about the conversation today about halachic change, particularly within Orthodoxy, which is basically what we're talking about. I think every discussion on halachic change that happens certainly in the United States or I think to some degree in Israel, in the Orthodox world, happens against the background of the experience of, we'll call it, reform and conservative Judaism. These movements, in different ways, starting in the 19th century, began to change not just sort of individual practices, but sort of like whole mechanisms and whole understandings of Halifa. The Orthodox understanding about this is that initially it was that this was problematic in Kvira. And I would say 100, 150 years later, I think many in the Orthodox world sort of look at the results and say, you see, we were right. It didn't last. Conservative Judaism had its high watermark in America in the decades following the Second World War, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, had a strong generation or two, but today is in a lot of trouble. And that's certainly the way the Orthodox world looks at the heterodox communities and therefore largely feels vindicated in being somewhat obstinate about halakhic change. And I would say particularly halachic change at the wholesale level. So, for example, no more mechitza, women rabbis, a lot of things having to do with women in shul in spaces, a sort of egalitarianism sort of throughout, and a whole bunch of other things that were done. And I think that sort of frames what I would call the reflex, right? The sort of wake someone up in the middle of the night, what do you think, first word? Yeah, can't do that. On the other hand, there is and has always been Halachic change. But the way I think of this, and this is terms that developed in conversation with my good friend Ellie Fisher, another really smart analyst and commentator, more of a historian than I am, is that one way to think about it is that we're much more comfortable changing things at the local level. We can think of it as like the back door rather than the front door. I think these metaphors all get to to the same place. So let me, let me give like one example. It's this sort of older example, but I think sort of sets up the template. Alpi din Torah and in the Gemara, a daughter, a woman, a, a daughter does not inherit if there are sons. Right? The Parsha of in the Torah talks about daughters inheriting, but that's of course when there are no sons. But when there are sons, the sons inherit. Now, one way to do this is to say, look, and this has been tried in a bunch of periods in history, in the Middle Ages much more recently in and around the development of the state of Israel, look, this isn't fair. This isn't egalitarian. We're just going to make a rule from now on. Sons and daughters hired and equally or something like that. I'd call that a wholesale change. A retail change has been what's happened, which is they started developing an issue that's called a star Chaxi Zachar, which, we'll leave out the mechanics, but basically is a document that that stipulates a large loan to the daughter, a sort of astronomical amount that the daughter is then willing to sort of trade for a proportional share of the inheritance. In the beginning, khati, half of what her brother would get. Let's leave out the before for a minute. This is complicated. That then developed into what today is often called a, a star Zasar Shalim. In other words, that half portion has bumped up to a full portion. So fundamentally, Many, no, well, not all, many from Jews using this mechanism through, forget about secular law and wills, just through straight up halakhic means, are giving their daughters an equal share to their sons in the inheritance. But it's done that way, sort of around the back or retail, in such a way that we say, okay, the structure of the din daraita, the din torah of the inheritance law stands. In in practice, there are ways, particularly if you are skilled and know what you're doing and looking for to accomplish other. And some people like to say we're gonna leave a nominal but not ridiculously nominal amount to be divided up by dintara. So let's say a thousand dollars or maybe five thousand dollars. So the largest, say ten thousand dollars, that will be left and divided per dintara. Meaning that the whore gets two shares and the rest of the brothers get a share. But the bulk of the estate and inheritance will be divided more equitably. So that, to me, is a traditional example of what we might call a retail or a backdoor way to think about halachic change, that you keep the structure
0: and you change the practice. What are some other examples? Now, look,
1: these can also run the gamut between things that are, that are institutionalized and things that are not, and things that are more well-known and things that are less well-known. The best in of America's prenup is a certain way to blunt the effects of the halachic divorce laws, right? Which give all the power to the man. And I think it's another example of this. The conservative movement basically changed the Ksuva to functionally, we won't get into the details, equalize divorce laws. And the Orthodox community rejected this. It had, of course, halachic reasons. But one could say that's too wholesale of a change. But if you go on the side and do this, enter into this document that sort of enforces a Din Torah, a halakhic obligation for a man to be responsible for his wife's sustenance, and then says, well, if the wife leaves the marital house, he's no longer doing that. So now he has to pay that. And then it uses American law to make that enforceable in the Beitim. So it's a sort of joint effort between a halachic idea an American law idea. And then in practice, it comes pretty close to at least blunting some of the worst parts of the worst abuses of the sort of classic system of get refusal. But again, I think contrasting that solution to the sort of just declaration that either halakhic divorce law should be fully egalitarian or to put it into the Ksuva so then sort of touches a structure, that seems to be another sort of example of where this happens. I think you you could also think of retail as not sort of only using devices, but to specific people that we say, okay, this thing is usually us sir, but if you go and ask, sometimes you get a hat there. And then we could sort of ask what sometimes.
0: Like they. abortion.
1: So abortion is a great example. Your, your sister-in-law, I think, wrote about this very, very effectively a few years ago. And that case is actually very interesting, I think. Because the public stance is often very, we'll call it abortion skeptical. That leads sort of a way in which these things are, I'll call it advertised to the public or presented to the internal public, leave aside what we tell the other world. And that became a big issue a couple months ago. But then, as Avital, I think, showed, it is, look, we don't know the numbers. There's no stats here. But it's not unusual that in a certain type of case with a certain number of factors, woman, couple, whatever it is, goes to the rev. And of course, they're choosing which Rav to go to. And these things become more possible. I don't want to get into sock and whatnot, but we see there that's another sort of wholesale retail, but slightly different than we talked about before. And I think there, you know, if I'm to sort of figure out what's, think about what's happening there, I think that there's a value in having a, there, there's a, certainly a reticence in Halasic culture to what we call, usually derisively, abortion on demand, or the sort of most radical or most extreme pro-choice versions. On the other hand, it doesn't line up with the pro-life halafa position, more or less. Of course, that's debated. So this sort of a little bit lets you grab the cord with two ends. Is that at the kind of cultural expressive level, we go one way, but we say, listen, life's complicated. Sometimes there's need. Sometimes there are competing factors. And depending on the post-take and how they understand the Halakha, that may come to bear. You could think of this as also in, in sort of like less fraught areas. There are all sorts of solutions that we give to, let's say, someone's about Baal and they have to go home, you know, and eat with their parents and live with their parents around Shabbos and Yontif and Avelas and Kashris and So there's all sorts of socks that people will get that sort of allow that to happen and a kind of local and needed basis. So I think that this is one way to think about halachic change is that Where we certainly in orthodoxy is hesitant of sort of broad policy statements that, well, because A, B, C, and D happened, therefore, you know, X is going to change, but rather sort of let things happen locally, much more bottom up through practice.
0: Let's go through some more examples. I I just want to acknowledge on one hand, halacha is very rigid and inflexible. And then on the other side of halacha, there's this nuance and custom psaq, your factors matter to the psaq, and your mental health matters, and all these different dynamics that make halacha nuanced and multidimensional. So I do want to bring up topics like women learning Torah, whereas when Sarshnir was bringing up the baseiakov system for girls that was so controversial now you're not firm enough if you don't go to baseiakov let's step on that for a minute
1: when I try to think about this to take the way you phrase it Halal <laughs> is very inflexible so I, w- I want to drill a little bit to think about what's that a product of so let's imagine we're going in a time machine you know hundred and fifty years ago nobody thought 150 years ago that the rules about say women in the show space to kind of throw a bunch of different issues together were particularly inflexible or formal because they merely mirrored what every what else was going on in society everywhere so part of what happens as social change happens and happens quickly is that all of a sudden a gap is exposed that wasn't there before. So if we were to go back and ask our great-great-grandmothers if they thought that the rules about limiting women in the shul space were particularly formal or rigid, they'd probably looked at you funny. Now, they might have said, the whole world's like that. What are you picking on a shul for? Or they might have just sort of assumed that's the way the world works. But either way, they wouldn't have seen us, halacha, being rigid as the issue here. Now, what's happened is we've had radical change in the you know, in the, what I call women in the public sphere over the last hundred and something years. And halacha or halachic practice has, I don't think it's remained stable exactly, but it's certainly not gone with the sort of fully egalitarian norms that the broader society has. And then right there, that gap is what we experience as rigid and formal. But this isn't answering, but I just want to express what's going on. You could think the same thing with the Aguna crisis, what we today call the Aguna crisis, which maybe more accurately is some Surabba would get. A hundred years ago, there was a different sort of Aguna problem, basically people running away from Europe to America and leaving their wives and families behind. But what we now call the Aguna crisis didn't exist because the secular laws were more similar, they weren't exactly the same, but were more similar structurally to the halachic laws. What happens in the 60s and 70s, you start getting what you know, lawyers call unilateral no-fault divorce, which basically is a fancy way of saying either, either half of the couple can leave the marriage at any time for any reason, or no reason, just say, I don't want to be here anymore. That becomes absorbed in first in society and then in law, and then all of a sudden, This sort of gap between that and halacha emerges, and that's what we today call the aguna crisis. But if you think, as I do believe in the Haredi world, is thought that a woman should not be allowed to leave the marriage unilaterally unless there's fault, meaning unless he can prove the husband is not fulfilling his halachic marital obligations, so then you don't see the present case. As an Aguda crisis, you simply say, yes, the Halach is doing what it should. It's accurately reflecting the norms. So again, I just think this is a general way to just conceptualize all these questions that what they are gaps between a social norm, often a changing social norm, and a halakhic regime that does change, but certainly changes more slowly and doesn't change wholly. And that gap is what we're experiencing here as, to use the words you use, as, as inflexible.
0: Let's talk about examples like shaving for men. And I know some sects don't shave at all. You have that in the Hasidic area. Yeah. So uh, let me tell you where I'm coming from. I've heard this said by a woman. Men figured out how to shave. They found the halafa loopholes. Why can't we find the halafa loopholes to get women more either opportunities or more flexibility around women's mitzvahs? For example, head covering or other sneeze related halachos. Since
1: we're talking about here, my first reaction is a shaital is a loophole. If a shaital allows a woman, I understand they're uncomfortable, but basically allows a woman to appear in public in a way that, unless you kind of know what you're looking for, doesn't seem all that different. And even if you know what you're looking for, was often seen as satisfactory. So I would just like pause it there for a second and just say, like, I think the thrust of what you're saying, there's something there. But like, we do live in a world where shantos are part of the, certainly from American Ashkenazi culture. You probably know better than I that they can be very fancy and very well done. So that is a form of a loophole. But I think the answer to the question a little bit touches on what I said before. I think loopholes can be found when there's an underlying agreement that they should be found. Or let's rephrase it. It's easier to find loopholes when you substantively think that the practice should change. Part of what you're picking up on is the fact that people don't think these practices should change. And therefore, the loopholes seem to be hard to find. So in other words, what I try to do is redirect the question from the loophole to what is the social basis that sits on? So everything having to do with gender, particularly in the Haredi world, and then to some degree in the modern Orthodox sex world, is contested space. One could say that the Haredi world in its, in its entirety is sort of fighting a battle, maybe not on every single front, but on many fronts, with the way modern culture conceptualizes gender and gender relationships. And therefore, that is reflected through the halachic practice. Some of it by keeping things, and some of it, as you previously talked about, adding new things. So, so that's the way I would think about it, more than where can you find the loopholes and sort of think into society and the social structures. Where are they demanded? Where are they seen as necessary? And where are they not? Now, that question is harder to map out, but I think that is the The core question. Let me give a very different example. Again, somewhat less contested space, but I wrote an article about this because to me, this Dafka looking at an uncontested space might give us a little bit, or it's contested, but in a different way, different set of issues. So after 1967, when Yerushalayim was captured, and there was immediately a lot of question about Shilasa Batama, Tishabav, and particularly. Nothing. the prayer we say, Ashkenazim saints in Mincha Tisha B'Av, which describes Yerushalayim as sort of a desolate, barren city with no one there. And shortly after 67, there were discussions like, look, we now, Yerushalayim is under our control. How can we say this? There were a few people who advocated what I would call wholesale front door change to that. Some chuvos written, discussions in sort of the from press, and largely they didn't go anyway, right? Largely, there's a sort of deep halachic conservatism that says, we don't do that. To go further, even the fast, leaving the site Tisha but let's say Shivas or batamas. So this is the subject of a discussion in the Sugim Gemara Rosh based on how it reads a discussion in the Sefer Zacharyah in Tanakh. But there's a decent argument that in the present social political circumstances, a reading Lagmar says you don't need a fast, the minor fast, everything but Tishbev and of course Yom Kippur. But there again, I think the innate halachic conservatism says mm, that sounds that feels too front y That feels like you're rupturing something very deep in the tradition. On the other hand, as I wrote in this article, a lot of the like second order practices of Tishbev have changed a lot, and I would say in my lifetime. Traditionally, B'Av is a day where you don't learn Torah. And I think at some point that meant like literally you don't learn Torah. And then the, the DeMar and the Poskim discuss very particular parts of certain Svarm and Tanakh and maybe a little bit of the Gemara that you can learn. But even there, you're supposed to learn it like quickly. So, you know, not that you have any insights to that because Torah is enjoyable, Torah is life. Torah is, at least, we, we try to make it the biggest joy in life. And now, Across the denominational spectrum, you will see that Tisha B'Av is devoted to day-long, and because we now use videos and whatnot, you don't even have to be physically present, very deep shiorim or kinos that with like a deep explanatory basis and are sophisticated and well thought out and thematic, and people will spend till three, four in the afternoon listening to this, basically learning toa. More, if you go to the kotel on Tisha B'av, you will see tens of thousands of people there. Now, invariably, when tens of thousands of people get together, it's a social scene, even if they are conscious that it shouldn't be. In the public, they say, listen, maybe you should go to visit graves. That's a cemetery. is a common Tisha B'av pastime. But they say, but if it's going to be a scene, they'll go. And here you go to the Koso, and there's, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people, easy. And you're going to run with everyone over from camp and yeshiva and seminary or whatever. And then, more recently, a practice developed of this Tisha of Kumsitz, particularly the last eras of Tisha, but you could see it also at night, where people, so NCSY sort of runs it, I guess you'd say, or is a germ of it in the Kotel. And, and they attract thousands of people. And in, in Hebrew, it's called Shirin n'shamah, or slow shira. It's very moving, very uplifting. It's hard to imagine you go back 200 years to Tisha B'Av and Vilna and that they would like be singing soulfully. And now it's like even broadcast, right? So that here you're in America, you're still like, it's still the middle of the afternoon, sometime before Hatsos. And then you're watching these people sort of like, you know, a very uplifting Tisha moment. Even the name, I'd say it's very interesting. The Kotel, if you look in, in English, you know, 50, 60 years ago, was called the Whaley Wall. Right, which I trace down. There's an article that explains it comes from Arabic, but that's where the Jews used to go. Well, and today we call it in English, if you call it either the Kotel, or if you use English English, you should call it the Western law. The characters change. So to me, all these things, and there's some other examples we could go through with Tish above, but you see that on the one hand, the fast is there, the five main inuim are there, right? We don't wash, we don't brush our teeth, we don't drink, we don't and I think changing that's gonna be very difficult. And Mm, seems unlikely until some great messianic era. But just underneath that, the sort of character of the day has changed and the sort of social, cultural dimension of what Tisha means. Uh, it's very different. In Israel, they even do chomot, right? They'll like walk around the walls of Yerushalayim. One year I saw pictures of that, and then I put it next to pictures of Yom Yerushalayim. And I said, hmm, hard to tell which one's Tisha and which one's Yom Yerushalayim. This is a way of saying, like, the culture is changing Tisha Buf at the kind of on-the-ground level without really touching the most ri- the most you know, rigid or, or entrenched halachic norms. And I think that is the way these things happen pretty common.
0: There's another big topic that sort of started up this conversation for us. I would say the kolisha space.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Tell me with your words, actually, what you picked up on.
1: So I'm speaking someone who knows this much more, but through following your social media and whatnot, I saw that there's this way to kind of wriggle in between the lines where, you, you know, traditionally in firm society, I don't need to tell you this, women didn't perform. Now, of course, in theory, women could always perform for women. And I assume that happened here or there in sort of small-ish spaces and venues, but it was never very public. And then I saw that now, you know, you put a Koleisha sort of, I guess to adopt a trigger warning on a song or on a video or whatnot.
0: I like to call it a consumer label.
1: A consumer label, right. But picking up on a different discourse, right, a trigger warning. And you put it out there and you say, listen, I'm keeping halacha. If somebody wants to go and see this, that's on them, not on me. So some of that is technology enabled, right? But some of that is saying, listen, we're going to find this space, right? And then it wasn't just you, as you explained to me. It was a whole bunch of women who, you know, you could do a spectrum everywhere from like just performing from co-ed audiences to only performing sort of in your living room to your mother and sister and maybe your cousins. And then like, you know, a million points in between of where you could be to sort of wedge into this. And then it's changing, or at least bringing this other thing to bear. And then here I know less, but I think in Israel, right, and these things often surround the army, where you'll have from people sometimes involuntarily at Taksim at ceremonies where women may sing or perform. And everything's fractured, but there's certainly a part of the foreign world that's like, okay, you know, maybe not what we would do, but, you know, don't walk out and protest because that's worse. So you see a way in which sort of no one's going to say there's no such thing as Colicia. Now then this connects to other heterium that have been around for a hundred years. It's different voices, you have two voices, if it's not live, it's recorded. Right, so you sort of put all these things together and then there's there becomes more of a space. There's, of course, a reaction to that, is better than I. And one way to read the, you know, fairly recent event that happened, which I think in part is a reaction to the fact that this crack opened. So you're going to you're going to have this push and pull. I don't think so much about Colisha, but about sort of women from women in online spaces more generally.
0: And for anyone interested, we did the 200th episode focused and dedicated to covering the Asifa. Let's talk about front end versus back end changes. And that's different from wholesale and retail. This is where people just start acting differently on the grounds. And then the rabbis just, or leadership, or lack of, just accept it or close their eyes to it.
1: So one thing that happens, um, and over into the conversation we just had, but one thing you want to ask is sort of like, what happens first? Does the halothic analysis happen first, or does practice happen first? And then it can become minhag. And one of the things that happens is that certainly in the commercial sphere, in the business sphere, there's even a principle that minhag can override halakha in some situations. Yerushalmi has a very evocative phrase called minhag milvatel halakha. The Babli doesn't have that, but it says hakol can minhag hamadina. And there's questions about the parameters of that. But certainly in sort of business issues, this is probably the easiest space, is that once a community or a community of traders or a business community practices a certain way, even if that's not what the formal halacha is, that can happen, notwithstanding its sort of asymmetries with the formal halacha. So that's sort of least controversial in the choshen Mishpat, in the business screens, and very much a part of how contemporary Bate Din work. But that also has implications, and I would say, in other fields. One example I often think about, I think if we were starting from scratch and you say, mm, can a foreign person go to medical school and be a doctor in the U.S.? And let's go back 60, 70 years before there's any such thing as a Shomer Shabbos residency or anything like that. Right? You are invariably going to break Shabbos. And you're invariably going to break Shabbos to save non-Jewish lives so that your pikuach nefesh heter is covering non-Jews. As a matter of formal all those things are are problematic. And yet, I think probably starting in the 20s and 30s, medicine became a well-known avenue for the firm community. Such that by the time this becomes that the rabbinic establishment is strong enough to come and think about it, it's already just a fact of firm life. And very, very important Maybe even less today because there's other professional avenues and non-professional, meaning non-professional school avenues open to from people, but it just became just part of the structure of from life in America and the Galut generally, and then the interpretation of various selfless Shabbos worked around that. You could think of owning businesses on Shabbat, which are complicated. You can throw Pesach in there too. But these things happen. And then, sort of like, how do we square them Now You want to contrast that with things that need rabbinic approbation at the front end. So, anything that happens in the shul space, whether it's gender-related or just liturgy-related, the way shuls work is you're going to ask the rabbi first. I think things with marriage and divorce, the rabbinic input happens first. And because of that, I think that there's a different structure to these things, that it's easier to, if practice develops, and not practice, anything here is important to understand, not practice of people we wouldn't call through, but practice of people we recognize as our peers, as people of our community, maybe in our aspirational peers, people who we look up to religiously. If that community is doing something, particularly in Ashkenaz, right, that is a long being almost like a halachic position. And Ashkenazi halacha has a long history of thinking this way. And that has a weight. But if, if the nature of the question, and again, I'm thinking of things that happen in the shul sphere, where the rabbinic input happens first, so then it has a different structure. And I think you generally will see more conservative halachas, so to speak, because it's not going to rely on I me. Mean, there too, it's funny, we stay, we're recording this the day after Yom Kippur, and I always say there's been a change to the machzer in the last 30 years that relates to something we talked about before. If you look in any mafsar printed, I believe the quran is the only one that has it printed. But if you look in the Arts Pro, and certainly anything before that, after they build the shofar, it says, Lishana haba And the same thing with Hadadahs. And then, at some point, clearly after 67, added Habnuya. People started adding Habnuya. They probably just did it. Because they felt, mm. And now you'll see that the Korin mafsar and certain Haggadahs well print, happen you. So that is a liturgic thing that comes from the bottom up. But you see that you kind of get a sense for from how this happens. So these are not absolute, but these are way that practices that become entrenched in community. and I think this is the important part, entrenched in communities we halachically respect. Solomon Schefter, a hundred and something years ago, had this idea of what he called Catholic Israel. Catholic Israel, he meant not Catholic the religion, but sort of you know Amh. Like the universal people. And the firm world rejected this. But I think it's important to think about why. I don't think his idea was wrong conceptually. It's just it's not one person, one vote, sort of the way he talked. Right? If you're not otherwise living the life that we recognize as a Torah life, then your vote on any particular thing in Hilkishabas or Fuscash or whatever it doesn't count. The Minog is strong, Daskawen this group of people, this community is otherwise living the life that the people around it respect and look up to, and then it could become a minhag, or at least their minhag. I always like to think about who's an apicoros and who has an unusual shita. That word in from a discourse, when we say it's a shita, it means it's a valid opinion. I may not agree with it. I may think it's of them off the walls, but they're entitled to have it. As opposed to, oh, that's crazy. They're co code from and they're not true. So I think sociologically, always think about who gets to be a Shita and who is off the wall in Afro. So from a kind of Litvish Ashkenazi perspective, certain things with Zmanin in the Hasidic world, like see off the wall, who is that? That's their Shita. Now think. Why do we react? And think, like, ah, that's a thing there. Mm, I don't love it, but they're entitled to do it. That's their thing. As opposed to someone driving on Shabbos. Okay, so you can argue there there's a lot of differences, but even on, on the Minak phrase, I think part of it is we say, does this community live a life that we recognize as authentic to how we understand Torah? And what they've said is generally, yes, they're allowed, everyone's allowed a couple a couple of weirdos, right? A couple of shitas. When it's not, so then it becomes very, very fraught. To go back to the feminism point or the you know, women's issues point. I think part of the reason this is such a contested space is because all these innovations tend to have, well, invariably happen in the communities that everyone else is least sure about whether they're in or going to stay in. And therefore, imagine, again, this doesn't happen, but imagine that they found out that deep in some Hasidic community, there were women did something that we found somewhat unusual. I think this would not cause, I think that would get tagged as a shita. It does not cause this rupture. Because, so listen, we're in no concern that they're going anywhere. But that's because these innovations tend to come from like the liberal edge of modern orthodoxy or, and in earlier generations, conservative and reformed Jews. And because of the history that we talked about, I think that they're the most contested and sensitive. So I always ask, it's always worth asking who gets to have an unusual shita and who's outside because they are doing something with windows- not excelled.
0: And to add, in my experience, all the Yotzot halafa that I've met, everyone who doesn't consider themselves a rabbi or that they're giving sock, they happen to be the most sincere, observant, very machmer type of people on their own Judaism. People love to put it under a blank statement as women who want to speak or they need, want the attention and this and that. They're half reform or conservative, and then when you meet them, they just love learning and they they have a dedication to Halakha and being very. Look at how they dress. Look at how they conduct themselves. So, but their commitment to halacha is very sincere.
1: Yes, and so I think that is by design. The OAT so understand the space that they're in. They understand the communal constraints, right? They understand that it's very important not to be a maharat and to land on this space. And I think they're very consciously doing all these things. In fact, I think it's not a secret that in selection for Yoetso, right? When one, when a woman applies to the Yoetso program, that sort of thing that you're talking about, sort of the affect. The space in the community, the space personally, is something that is considered, and I think their success in finding that Gesher Sarma Ode within the modern orthodox community is in large part a function of having a deep intuition of where these lines are and what they look like. For now, things can change. These things can change. One suspects, again, here I'm kind of talking at the edge of my skates, but that if the first waves of this were very America-driven... The future waves of this are going to be very Israel-driven. You have in Israel many institutions of various types that are where women are undertaking very serious Torah education. I think there's just more of them and a greater variety in Israel. And I don't know where that's going to lead, but something's going to happen. There's going to be some way in which there's a public expression of this, and there already is. Just to take one example, we're just coming off Slicha season. So it's known that Slichas and Migdalos, the women's, the Yeshiva of on Gush's women's division, is an event. Ooh, it's an event that has no parallel for that. In other words, should, Slichas and Gush are like, okay. But Slichas and Migdalos are this event where thousands of women are coming, and by the way men go to see the event. Is that halacha in the narrow sense? No, but it's clearly... Clearly related to this, something is happening. I don't know where it goes. And people are thinking about this and grappling all the time. Again, I always say that these conversations only make sense against the background of reform and conservative Judaism, the reflexes. And I think that they're ultimately healthy reflexes. One could argue on points here and there, right? But like, it's almost like saying, look, this was tried to do it all and all at once and look what happened. And I think the front world. And I would say legitimately lives in that shadow. Uh, You could argue point by point and issue by issue. But I do think that certainly in America, the experience is like, look, we tried. It's almost like they're saying,
0: yeah, we tried. Look what happened. And people will say that about modern orthodox Jews as well. Correct.
1: Correct. And I think this is not unrelated to modern orthodox slide to the right, which, you know, is a complicated story. But, you know, there's counterexamples as well. But I think part of the slide to the right is a sense of, like, you get too close to that line and we know where it ends. Now, could someone come and show, no, here's how it works? Maybe. And if they do, and it works on a mass scale, I think that will change the discussion. So I've said this before. Ethan Tucker, a good friend of mine, is the head of Mahon Hadar. Mahon Hadar, for, if your audience says, no, is an interesting sort of experiment of an egalitarian space, but that really models itself on yeshiva You know, say yeshiva type culture. In other words, unlike the JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, which models itself on a Protestant seminary, which models itself on a university, Mechon Adar's, I think, main insight in this American Jewish scene is to say, no, 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 what yeshiva gets right is the structure. You start with shachris, you have seder, you have shir you sort of live together or you have Shabbos together, right? It's a full experience and they draw on a lot of, I would say, yeshiva particularly kind of has their and modern reflex yeshiva culture, except it's fully egalitarian. Now, I always said there's going to be a very easy test to know if this works or not. And that test is as follows. Will there be... Are there kids from... Nope, not even that. Will there be egalitarian airport minions? What do I mean? If you're, you know, from male, female too, and... You're somewhere in the airport traveling and the sun's about to go down, it's mincha, right? So all of a sudden you see a bunch of other people, maybe the flights from Israel, maybe not. And then in the corner of some uh, I'm talking about not in in the corner of some gate, there's an impromptu mincha minion that takes about six and a half minutes. What is that showing? That's showing that people have embodied the need of Tfilabit B'tzibur so much that no matter where they are, they're gonna find it. And there are other people who are immediately identifiable. As are you part of our group or not? We mentioned Ellie Fisher. We talked about this with him. The seventh inning stretch at minions at baseball games, right? You're there for like the most guyish experience imaginable, an American baseball game. And you don't really want to miss the game. So you find that okay, well like minchen. Now you could look at this very cynically, right? But you could also look at this thing, like, no, this is what it means to have a chiv, right? To understand yourself as obligated. So if Mahon Hadar or any such non-Orthodox, more egalitarian community is able to produce people who just, and I don't mean five people, I mean, enough people, right, to matter socially that will just like wherever they are, there, there's enough that you can just have an impromptu minchaminian. let it be egalitarian, five million, five million, whatever it is, at a baseball game, run it, then that will succeed. And I've told this to you, and he has adopted this. So I mean, he, he agrees that that's the test. So now you can have a deeper question of is that possible and what makes that possible. But what I'd say is, if that happens, I think this conversation in the long run changes.
0: I think key factor you mentioned is identifiable. If people aren't identifiable, then
1: that's right. I have to know whether I can ask you for mincha. We're not chabad. We don't go around saying, "Are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? Are you Jewish?" Right? Part of the way this works is that within point two seconds, I can figure out whether you're you're up for mincha or not. <laughs>
0: Tell us about your book.
1: Sure. So my book called Halacha: the Rabbinic Idea of Law, tries to look at the phenomenon of halacha and Torah learning and try to make sense of it. The way I often explain to people is when we think of law, as we've been talking the whole time, we think of rules, of regulations, of restrictions. When we think of things that uplift people's spirit, that bring people closer to each other, to self-understanding, we think of things like art and music and literature and poetry, right? And these are really different types of texts and really different types of discourses. My argument is that through the process of Talmud Torah, what Haddad tried to do is to take the same universe of texts and ideas and apply and and use them for both of these ends. On the one hand, for regulation, for halakha in the restrictive way, that we think about it, and also for Talmud Torah and the way that we connect to God, connect to ourselves, connect to each other. And what's fascinating to me is that we use the same body of text in totally different ways. And that's what the book explores.
0: I highly recommend reading this, and we're going to link it in the show notes. What would you like to leave the audience with? If there's anything you can say, what would it be?
1: Sure. So I want to leave the audience with when we think about the halachic development, I think we always need to start with the texts themselves. How are they framed in the tradition? What's a daraisa? What's a darabana? What's a minhag? Where do these things come from? I think that matters. And then we add on top of that, what are the social pressures that are ambient? Which communities are doing what things? And like I said before, which communities do we aspirationally want to be like? And I think that helps understand what types of changes are enabled in halakha and what types of changes are less so. But I want to leave with one last thing, and I say this to myself as much as to you and your, uh, any one of any member of your audience. Uh, we often live within communities that have norms and rules and halakhot and interpretations that we don't love and that rub against us. And we always think, look, the world is a very big place The Jewish world is a very big place. There are many, many, many ways to be Jewish and many, many ways to be from an Orthodox and there's a tremendous spectrum. And yet we find ourselves returning to certain communities precisely because they provide us something that we don't find elsewhere. As I often think about this internally in myself, sharing something like personal, there's sometimes a connection between the type of thing that annoys me about a community and the type of thing that draws me to a community and that, that trying to cut that knot doesn't always work. So what I sort of say more personally and less sort of like analytically than we've been talking until now is that each person, as they are thinking about goals and changes and what frustrates them and what doesn't to make an honest assessment about, look, there are other places to go. What's drawing you back and to some degree i think that part of what's drawing you back is sometimes the thing that you're resisting and that doesn't answer all the questions and that doesn't you know solve all the issues and there's still going to be lots of things that you know are problematic but i do think we should be honest with ourselves that there are other options and we're choosing to be in a certain place and what's driving that choice and i think as we think about that the driving the annoying and the frustration and the love are much more connected than they are separate
0: this has been such a lovely and informative conversation with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. And where can people find you?
1: So I teach at Villanotha. I'm not a huge Karen kind of social media person. I'm on Facebook sometimes with generally light content. Every now and again, I write in the Lairhouse or, or in the Jewish Review book, social commentary, tradition sometimes as well.
0: Brand dance thank you so much again for tuning in weekly to the show if you haven't caught that narcotics anonymous episode check out last week's episode and check out the other episodes of this show please do share this podcast with your friends and family members as well as take a peek and check out the other podcasts on the jewish coffee house network if you need podcasting help you know how to find me All the links are in the show notes and see you next time.